Our teaching text this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. And if you're using a blue shed Bible, it can be found on page 927. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the Lord be with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Ashley, and I'm one of our co-lead pastors here. It is a joy to serve this body and this community. And I just want to say Happy New Year and welcome back to those of you who had holiday travel. You made it. You made it back. A lot of people are still stuck somewhere. Well, we send them our, our best wishes. And if you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning as well. Um, speaking of holiday travel, there's a woman I came across in this story, and she found herself at an airline counter. And she was trying to get back home because something had gone terribly wrong, and she realized that her options to get home the very next day had all run out. She was flustered, and actually this was all captured on film, and she was overheard saying these words. She said, I don't care if I have to get on your runway and hitchhike. If it costs me everything I own, if I have to sell my soul to the devil himself, I am going to get home to my son. This had nothing to do with the recent Southwest Airlines debacle, where in 16,700 flights, were canceled over a span of just days. The woman who spoke these words was Catherine O'Hara. <laughs> Playing Kate McAllister in the 1990 film Home Alone. In case you're not familiar, she'd realized that she and her large family had left their youngest son, Kevin! at home all by himself. And understandably, she's trying to do everything in her power to get to him. And yet on the other side of the counter from this frantic mother is this guy. <laughs> and if we had to summarize his response to her, it's essentially represented by six words that no one, that no one in a desperate situation wants to hear. And those words are, there's nothing more that we can do. Whether you're at an airline counter or in a doctor's office, 
whether you're in a boardroom or a waiting room, whether you're across and reading the headlines of a disastrous recent event or on the other end of a phone line. No one wants to hear those words. It's in those situations where you've met the end of both your options and your agency. And it's here where comfort and answer, resolve, seem out of your reach. It's in these situations when desperation sets in and desperation will drive some of us to do just about anything, won't it? We're starting a new series today called Jesus And. And really, we're trying to accomplish what happens when we get curious about the life of Jesus and specific interactions that he has throughout the gospel texts. We're really trying to take seriously our formation that's toward our vision as a Jesus people for the sake of the world. And if we profess that that is true, if that truly is our hope, then we must take our cues from Jesus's actual life. We look at the kind of life he lived. And so with this series, we hope to do just that. Submit to the one whose life we follow. And today we start with a woman who had heard essentially those six words time and time again. There's nothing more we can do. This was a woman who was willing to do just about anything. She was desperate question to think about this morning is how do we collectively treat desperate people? Are we land of the free, home of the desperate? Do we tell our kids you can be anything you want to be if you just believe and try hard enough and on that list is desperate and approved quality? of what we hope they someday become. Of course it isn't. Many of us were taught to be self-sufficient, measured, emotionally contained, despite what might be churning on the inside. And I can think of at least three ways that I have been conditioned to treat desperate people. The first is to ignore them. Parents, in the room, aunties, babysitters, uncles, grandparents, you know what it's like when you're having an important conversation and some little human runs up to you and just starts with the finger, just the tapping. It's way too easy for this little human who perhaps has a desperate need. Mommy, I have to go potty. Mommy, I need a snack. It's way too easy for us to ignore that kind of desperation, isn't it? Because what we have to say or do is more important. What you need is less important. I also think of the ways that I've been taught to avoid desperate people. Some of us know our surroundings well enough to know we don't go over there. 
We stay away from that area. We avoid that street. Some of us, myself included, have been guilty of getting to a stoplight, seeing someone holding a sign, and all of a sudden we want to look everywhere else. We've been taught, perhaps, to avoid desperate people, and finally, we've been taught to label them. I mean, there's a whole show called Desperate Housewives, and we're not taught that this is a good thing. There's even an article I came across online from a very prominent fashion magazine that had an article entitled, Seven Ways to Come Off Less Desperate So He Will Like You. Ugh. Desperation is like its own disease. For many of us, we've been taught to avoid it at all costs, but it doesn't take long to look around and notice that our world, our communities, our neighborhoods, the very chairs in which you sit in this church are filled with desperate people. And for some of you this morning, that desperate person is you. So it's imperative that as a Jesus people, we learn to engage those who many in our midst would choose to ignore, avoid, and label, and choose a different way. Before we explore how Jesus responds to what this woman did out of her desperation, let's briefly explore her condition. This was a woman who we are told has been suffering from issue of blood. Many think she's hemorrhaging, bleeding that will not stop for 12 years. Now, growing up, I was taught to see this as like, oh, that's a really long time. The point is that this is a long time that she's been struggling with this physical ailment, and that's true. But we also have to look at how her ailment, how her disease met the law of the day. There is something to be said about how this woman should be treated and interacted with, with those in her midst. See, the law declared this in Leviticus 15, we find that when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, at any time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be, get this, unclean as long as she has the discharge. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water. So this wasn't just a pesky medical issue. Because she was bleeding perpetually for 12 years, this meant she could not engage the cleansing ritual after a period of time that would have been approved of in order to re-enter into her community again. She was ignored unable to attend the temple or other worship services. So essentially, she was kept out of church. She was avoided because her mark as unclean might have implications for those around her. People didn't want to be in her midst. Not her family, not any friends that she might have had. If she were a parent, 
she would no longer be able to care for them. If she happened to have a husband, the husband likely would have divorced her by now, particularly if she was without child. Because that means there was no opportunity to even try. So not only does she have a physical ailment, but she is labeled unclean and unwanted, ignored, avoided, labeled. And we're told in the text that this woman had suffered under the hands of many doctors. And some of us might think, yeah, that would be pretty painful. But we have to look beyond to the social construct of that day. Say this wasn't just a suffering physically. This was mental suffering. This was emotional suffering. This was suffering outside the context of community. We were told she had spent everything that she had. She is broke. You name it, this woman has nothing left. Just surveying your own hearts, is there one here? You don't, don't raise your hand, but do you feel like coming into a new year, perhaps you feel like, at least in one area of your life, you have nothing left. You have no more fight. You have no words of wisdom. You have no energy. You have nothing. If you are, you know what it's like to be acquainted with the feeling of having nothing more than to lose. When you've heard, there's nothing more we can do so many times, you start to believe there's really nothing more that can be done to make it worse either. And so this woman who's in that place risks her very life. And she ventures out into the crowd. This woman had nothing more to lose. The text doesn't tell us this, but just the fact that she is there in the midst of a throng of people tells us she was willing to lay down her life to try something just one more time because nothing else was working anyway. So let's, let's put a bookmark here and talk about faith a moment. This, this woman's story doesn't come to us in isolation. Where, where Lori started to read for us in Mark 5 was at the beginning of this account. I love the Mark and account of the story versus the accounts we find in Luke 8 and Matthew 9, because we get another story that surrounds it. Mark writes like this a lot, where we have an initial story, you could call it story A, then there's another story tucked in the middle, story B, and then he comes and resolves and picks up story A again at the end. This is what we see happening here. The first story is that of a distinguished synagogue leader. You can call him Jairus, J-Iris. There's many ways we've heard this pronounced. I'll call him Jairus. He also happens to be desperate. Here's where Mark 5.23 leads us. He pleaded earnestly with him. 
My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. It's interesting to note that Jairus, who is someone who would have been appointed by the elders to look after the synagogue, to look after its contents, its worship order, to be an overseer of affairs, is asking Jesus to come to his house so he can touch his daughter. But this woman, who's been bleeding for 12 years, thought, thought, if I just, if I just touch his clothes. Jairus assumes that Jesus has to be there physically and have some sort of physical presence and physical involvement to heal. This woman thinks, if I just touch Jesus, then something might be in the works for me. Both of them have an idea as to how Jesus works, but both of their ideas as perhaps, if I may be so bold to say, all of our ideas of Jesus are incomplete. You see, Jairus, as knowledgeable as he is, he assumes this is how my daughter is going to be well. But the beginning of chapter 5 has nothing to do with these two stories. The beginning of chapter 5 is Jesus healing a demon-possessed man. And we see the demons plead with Jesus to go into some pigs. And Jesus does what? He speaks. This woman, she thinks she can somehow, some people might think that she's trying to steal power from Jesus, that she could touch him on the fringe just as she was on the fringe of society, not believing she needed an intimate encounter, just some limited contact, like she wasn't interested or expecting relationship, just results. Both of them had put Jesus in their own kind of limited box as to how they thought this might work. And so I pause here to ask you today, church, have you been waiting to get it right? Are you waiting for your ideas about who Jesus is to be just right before you do something Bold, before you make a big ask, before you step out in faith and be proximate to the one. Because even as limited as both of their faith was, the first thing Jesus does right out of the gate was Jesus met them where they were. That, when I read, I had such a sigh of relief. Jesus didn't say to Jairus, well, Jairus, actually, we can take care of this right here, O ye of little faith. He doesn't say to the woman or scold her for sneakily trying to access perhaps some power that was available to her. He doesn't do any of those things. Jesus met them where they were, and then he does three things. At least, one, he doesn't ignore the woman. 
he notices something happens. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. I'm less interested here in trying to crack the mechanics of this miracle as this is the only time we see a person healed this way. So I'm not going to spend time trying to figure that out, but I am struck by the fact that there has been a crowd around Jesus this entire time, brushing up against him, perhaps tripping him up a little bit, making it hard for him to move. There have been spectators, disciples, and perhaps distinguished men, and yet there was something both immediate and distinct about this woman's touch of desperation that caught Jesus's attention. We notice later, and he names it as her faith, and I love what Augustine says about this text in particular, that flesh presses, but faith touches. There was something distinct about how this woman chose to encounter Jesus that was separate and distinct and unique from everybody else. And I I just wonder that if some of us who have been in the crowd for a long time might sit with this a moment. So long some of us have been in the crowd, in fact, that we've forgotten the things about our lives that we needed saving from in the first place. We are happy to press up against Jesus, to be close to Jesus, to be near Jesus, to know just enough about Jesus, to watch Jesus work elsewhere. But perhaps we've been in that place so long that we've forgotten our own desperation. And so therefore, When someone else approaches Jesus in a posture of desperation, we, the onlookers, are like, what? What are they doing there? What are you doing here? As a Jesus people for the sake of the world, I I look at Jesus noticing this woman, and I have to ask, who are the desperate among us who we've ignored? whose faith we can't see because we won't see them. Jesus noticed her. But then he does something else. He doesn't just notice that power has gone out from him. He notices something, but then he turns. He doesn't avoid the situation. And I I know you know this feeling because if you've ever lost something important to you, a pet, a ring, a kid in a department store, you know what it's like to turn the entirety of your attention to finding that thing. I can imagine Jesus in a crowd looking, looking around. Because I would assume that Jesus knows, Jesus knows who touched him. But there's an invitation that he's holding here, just waiting waiting for some kind of reciprocation. If I were to go around this room and look each of you in the eye intently, I can imagine that at least half of you will get a little uncomfortable. Like, I, I don't know if I can hold eye contact. That this, is a little, this is a little too much. This is a little intimate. Look away. 
now, right? Like, I can imagine people like, I, and the disciples are like, well, Jesus, there are people around you. Can't you feel those who are pressing in around you through the crowd? But what distinguishes Jesus' interaction with her, he's, he's not interested in what the crowd is doing or wondering. But he asks, who touched me? This word touched is to fasten oneself to, to cling onto. I imagine Jesus turning his face and saying, I can see and notice you, but will you come into my presence to be known? I can turn toward you, but will you say yes to my loving gaze? Will you enter in just a little bit more. Jesus can turn his face toward you. We've sung this blessing so many times. We just sang it today. The Lord turn his face toward you and grant you peace. But it's possible for the Lord to turn toward you and for you to refuse his face. When's the last time you welcomed Jesus' gaze toward you? When's the last time you welcomed Jesus' gaze? If we're going to be a people that turns toward the desperate, if we are going to be ones who turn, we need to first practice receiving his gaze ourselves to be known. To know what it's like to be known. One other thing I find interesting is this woman comes forward. She makes the decision not to hide, to back away into the crowd and and go home, simply being healed. But she comes forward fully vulnerable. She falls at his feet. She's terrified because she knows what could happen next. She knows what her actions deserve. And she tells Jesus the whole truth. I imagine her telling Jesus about her condition, how hard it's been, how much money she's lost, perhaps about her sin, how she's come to the decision to make herself part of the crowd that she'd heard about Jesus and her rationale as to why she chose to do what she did. And Jesus names her. He names her daughter. He doesn't call her desperate. He doesn't call her unclean. He gives her a name that invites her back into relationship. And I'm imagining the scene, it's so beautiful to me, to imagine not just Jesus and this woman, but the crowd around them witnessing this as well. Those who avoided her those who ignored her, those who labeled her. They are being formed in this moment as well. I also picture Jairus just frustrated because he's like, why would you stop? We have somewhere to go. My daughter, my daughter needs you. And yet here Jesus is in the midst of the ones who've labeled her and he gives the desperate a different name. It's commonplace for us to talk about people we view as desperate in our midst a certain way, right? You've heard these terms, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the under-resourced, those on the fringes. 
of society. But may we not, as a Jesus people, get so comfortable with labels that we forget people's real names. Son, daughter, beloved. I love what Howard Thurman writes in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. He says, there is something more to be said about the inner equipment growing out of the great affirmation of Jesus that a man is a child of God. He no longer views his equipment, his equipment being his skills and everything that he has within him, his gifts, through the darkened lenses of those who are largely responsible for his social predicament. The fact that he is denied opportunity will not necessarily deter him. A large measure of illusion and self-deception is implicit in this notion. But again and again, it has come to the rescue of desperate people forced to take desperate chances. It makes a difference to know that you are not just desperate, but you're a daughter. You are not just someone who is at the end of his rope. You are a son. It makes a difference to know that you're not just called the label of what society wants to put on you, but you are beloved. Names change things, and Jesus changed this woman by giving her a different name. How will we choose as we walk forward to label the desperate in our midst. So I love this text because the desperate who was ignored, Jesus, he notices. The one who others avoided, Jesus turned toward. The one who was labeled Jesus' names. And then after she told the whole truth, after she said yes to the invitation of being known, after she risked everything, he sends her. And for some of us, we don't know why we passed the peace, but here's a fresh resource, a fresh reminder as to why we passed the peace in this place. He said, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She had already been healed, but he's sending her back into the community that shunned her and said, be freed of your social suffering. Go back into the place that said, you are to be ignored and be freed from your mental suffering, be freed from your emotional suffering. He sends her, he says, go in peace, that I, the one with authority, not the doctors who harmed you, not the doctors who didn't have answers, go with the peace that I give you and be freed from your suffering. Before we come to the table, I want to take a few moments to try a new practice that perhaps we haven't done in a while. Many of you um, are coming to this practice new. It's called Visio Divina. And as I was looking at images of artists who have done their own depictions of this text, I found this beautiful piece by a Bulgarian artist named Julia Stinkova. And she draws the woman from Mark 5 like this. And so, as a point of reflection, as an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, whether you find yourself as the one who is desperate or the one in the crowd, whether you find yourself as Jairus who's anxious for Jesus to be somewhere else, or simply an onlooker, I want us to take an opportunity with this piece 
So first, I just want you to take a look at the image and let your eyes stay with the first thing you see. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you? It's the first thing your eye notices. Holy Spirit, speak. Next, allow your eyes to gaze at the whole image. What do you notice? What do you get curious about? Perhaps for the very first time today, these next few seconds are an opportunity for you to tell the whole truth. To tell Jesus the whole truth about what's stirring in you emotionally, which you've been holding on to mentally, where you find yourself in proximity to Jesus today. Perhaps in these moments, you offer that up to the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to respond. Lord, collectively make us a people who encounter the desperate amongst us as you do. Lord, give us the presence to notice. Lord, give us the urgency to turn. And God, I pray that you would give us the words to name people as you see them as our brothers and sisters, your beloved. Holy Spirit, make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.